Yeah, well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's really good to be here. Uh, like Steph said, my name is John Lightbody. Uh, if we have not had a chance to meet, I'd love to say hello after the service. It'd be, it'd be great to get to know you a little bit. So a bit about me. I'm actually a member here most weeks. Uh, Brandon, one of our pastors, is up here preaching. Uh, but this week he's on vacation, and I have the privilege to preach to you from the Gospel of John, which I'm, I'm really excited about. So a bit about me. I'm a husband to Jenny. Uh, we have three kids, Evan, Owen, and Nora, ages 9, 7, and 6. Uh, I'm an engineer at Wright Height, and we're members of the Blaubach small group. Right? So with all that said, for the last few months, we've been working through the Gospel of John. Right, so John is one of uh, four Gospels in the Bible, and the Gospels really tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But as we've been talking about, the Gospel of John is just a little bit different than the other three. You see, because the, the Gospel of John was written maybe 20 or 30 years after these other Gospels, and John has a different target audience in mind. And that is uh, people who are maybe second and third generation Christians, people who've grown up around Jesus and are familiar with Jesus, but many of whom do not have a life-transforming, saving faith in him. And essentially what John wants to see is people's head-level knowledge become a transforming heart-level faith in Christ. And so in the first half of this book, we've seen John really focusing a lot on Jesus' public ministry. Jesus has been spending about three years walking through Judea and Samaria, uh, performing signs and miracles and doing a lot of teaching. But here in the second half of the book, he's going to zoom in on the last week of Jesus' life before he dies and rises again. And here the setting is that Jesus is in a room alone with his disciples. And Jesus is going to make a unbelievable, radical claim this morning in our passage. He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right, And if you're familiar with this passage, you might know it as kind of a, a proof text that teachers and, and preachers use to help people understand that it's only through faith in Jesus that we can be reconciled to God and like forgiven of our sin and, and brought into his family and and that's absolutely true. However, there's actually a lot more going on in this passage that I'm excited to show you this morning. Because in reality, these are not fighting words on Jesus' part. These are actually truths that are meant to quiet his disciples' anxious hearts and give them peace in the midst of their trials. And in order to understand this, we need to take a look at the context that Jesus is speaking into. Right? Last week, uh, Brandon preached on John chapter 13, like the whole chapter like all 40 verses or whatever. And there's a few things we just need to remember going into chapter 14, right? The first is that we saw that Judas has left to betray Jesus. The second is that Jesus has just told the disciples Peter is going to deny him three times before the next sunrise. And finally, Jesus reminds them again that he is going to leave them, that he is going to die. And the thing we need to understand then this morning to really see our passage accurately, is that the disciples' whole world is starting to come undone. It is unraveling. You see, they had a, a vision for the future and, and what their place in that vision would look like, and the disciples have banked everything on Jesus. They have been following him for three years. They have left their jobs. They have left their families. They are banking on him being the Messiah, and now they're coming to find out the disciples are falling apart and Jesus is going to die. All their expectations are being destroyed. And it is when the disciples' entire world feels like 
utter chaos that Jesus is going to speak into their confusion and despair. And his words are intended to comfort and reassure when nothing seems sure. I just want to say like up front, if you're like me, and when Jesus says things like, no one comes to the Father but through me, if that stirs up some level of discomfort or anxiety, right? Like, I'm with you. But the last month has been such a life-giving thing for me to study this passage. And it has been so reassuring and comforting to see what Jesus really has to say. And I'm really excited to show that to you this morning. My hope and prayer for our time today is that we will see when our world is falling apart and everything seems like chaos, the way we find peace is by believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, every other way we seek to find peace in the midst of trial, it only leads to a greater sense of chaos in the end, even if those ways provide some kind of temporary comfort. But Jesus alone is the one sure thing we can bank on when we don't understand anything else that God is up to in the world. Let me pray for us here. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. God, thank you for reassuring your disciples when they are scared and anxious. And God, we just pray that you can speak to our hearts as well. We know that these words are for us too. And so we just pray that by your spirit, you would show off just how good and kind and loving and patient Jesus is. And we need your help to see that, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this morning, John chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. And again, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples alone in this upper room. He says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, and I will take you to be with me where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak in my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That's the word of the Lord. So, if you're like me, and you don't preach very often, and uh, the text you're in, it just sort of gives you an outline, you grab that bad boy and you run with it, okay? <laughs> so in this passage, Jesus mentions he's the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to walk through each one of these, and we're going to see how each of these ideas attaches to Jesus' goal in verse 1, that the disciples' hearts would not be troubled, okay? So Jesus is the way. And I think a fair question to ask out the gate is, he's the way to what? 
pain. And this seems to be what, what Thomas is asking. He's like, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're talking about. Can you please clue us in? The good thing is Jesus tells us in verses 2 and 3, right? He's talking about the Father's house. Jesus is talking about the way to get home, where there is rest, where there is peace, where there is fulfillment, the place we belong. And I think this idea of like longing for home is something we can all resonate with to some degree. I'm blessed to have like a job where I don't travel very often, but I think what's funny is when you talk to people who travel a lot, sort of the, the romance and the appeal of traveling has kind of worn off for them. And people like me who don't travel very often, like it seems really cool to like go places. And, and it is every now and then, but you know, I had a, a point in my career about five years ago where I was doing a lot of traveling. We were taking these 12-day trips out to the Bay Area, and I remember my whole team getting out to San Francisco, and we had the afternoon to kill on day one, and we were like hanging out by the ocean. We went to like get fancy seafood and shoot oysters. Some of you, that sounds gross. I thought it was great. Uh, we saw the Golden Gate Bridge. It was, it was a party. Um, and then six or seven days later, I found myself in the basement of a lab around midnight working on a test case, and, and my teammates and I hadn't eaten since lunch, and so... We walk out of the lab, you know, a little after midnight and sort of like slid into a Buffalo Wild Wings. And I remember sitting there with this burger in front of me being like, if I could just have this in my stomach and not have to eat it and like go to bed and like wake up at home, that would be awesome. I was done traveling. I was sick of it. Right? And I feel like whether maybe you're, you're uh, coming to college for the first time or whatever situation you're in, you, you can remember a time where you really just wanted to go home. But home primarily isn't about a place, right? Heaven is an actual place. I want to get that right. But, but home is about having the sense of belonging. And Jesus uses this home language because heaven is all about being with God. That is what we were designed for. It is where we belong. And the truth is, other worldviews talk about the idea of making it home. But the way is rules. It's religion, right? In Islam, we have five pillars, these five big laws that have to be kept to get us home. In Buddhism, it is the sevenfold path, or in Orthodox Judaism, there is the Mosaic law that has to be followed so we can get our way home. But Jesus here says, I am the way. He's saying a person is the way home. So what does that mean? I think Jesus is helping us understand this when he says that he's preparing a place for the disciples. And when I first read this, I think the notion I had in my mind was like property brothers, where like he's going up with like hammer and nail style to like fix something that's broken up there. And that's not what he means. No shock there, right? But that's not what he's talking about. The, the way Jesus is talking about is he's going to the cross. He's preparing a way to get home by dying in our place for our sins and rising again. This is what it means for Jesus to prepare a place for us. And as the disciples are, are looking into the void of being without Jesus, of his leaving, Jesus is calming their anxious hearts by letting them know he's going ahead of them to prepare this place. And it's to their benefit that he leaves, otherwise ultimately they cannot be with him. You see, unlike every other way we may look to, the storms in our heart are only calmed when Jesus is our way home. Because you see, if, if Jesus is the way, we don't need to constantly measure ourselves up to the standards that others set for us or that we even set for ourselves. Tim Keller has this uh, great quote. He's one of my favorite Bible teachers. He says, religion always leads to pride or despair. That is, following lists of rules always leads to pride or 
or despair. Pride because we can look at a list of rules, maybe we set the bar kind of low and we feel like we're crushing it and we feel like we're doing awesome. Or despair because we see how far we fall short and we know that we don't measure up. You see, but when Jesus is the way, we are banking our lives and our hopes on him and his performance and not ours. And I think it's important here to talk about the exclusivity of this claim that Jesus makes. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're like me, sometimes this can be a really hard statement to wrestle with. You know unbelieving friends, neighbors, and coworkers who are just straight up nicer people than you. Right? And it's hard to imagine the idea of them not making it home because you care about them, because you love them. Right? I often find myself, when I'm talking to my kids about ideas like this, I have to remind them and me that God is the good guy. Right? We have to think carefully about what Jesus is saying here because he's not slamming the door closed to the kingdom in people's faces. Right? Rather, at the cost of his own life, he is holding open the only door that exists. It cost him his own life to open that door for us. It's not one that we have earned the right to walk through. And he's inviting all the world to come to him. You see, as the disciples are seeing their world unravel, they are tempted to look another way. But here Jesus is reassuring them, no, you have bet your lives on me. You are in the right place, even though right now it doesn't feel like it. Right? This, this truth of his exclusive claim is meant to calm their anxious hearts. He wants them to know they are exactly where they belong. Finally, Jesus says, uh, he moves on to say, excuse me, I am the truth. Right? And if you're like me, the idea of truth, sometimes you tend to think of things that are objective and subjective. Right? So objective things are like two and two make four. The earth orbits around the sun. Subjective things are like golden grams are delicious or like Yeti coolers are a super good investment. Um, maybe they are, I don't know. Subjective, right? But when we're facing uncertainty, we don't need to like, just know facts. We need to know what is certain, what we can bank on, what we can hope and trust in. And this is, I think, what really Philip is getting after with his question. He says, show us the Father, Jesus, and that will be enough for us. You see, Philip is staring into the void again of, of being without Jesus, and he says, if I could just have like maybe a vision, Jesus, of like, the way Isaiah or Ezekiel did, if I could see the throne room of God and the angels and his glory and maybe like audibly hear his voice, then I would know. Then I would have the confidence I could make it through not having you here. I could face the anxiety and the turmoil that I'm facing, right? I really resonate with this because as long as I've been following Jesus, there's a part of me that just like wants to like be really sure like, I wish when I got saved, like, a stamp showed up in my hand or I had, like, a physical contract I could look at. I, I wish there was some thing I could point to and be like, there it is. That's how I know. What Philip is showing here, though, is there's something really fundamental about who Jesus is that he does not understand yet. And how does Jesus respond? Graciously and patiently. Jesus says by engaging with him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? You see, Philip watched Jesus take a boy's lunch and feed thousands of people. Philip watched Jesus take a raging, stormy sea and calm it with one word. Jesus was there and Philip was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead with a word. 
And what Philip doesn't understand is that the Lord God himself is sitting across from him at this table. You see, Jesus doesn't just say true things. He is the embodiment of truth itself. The Bible makes it clear that all the world is held up by the word of Jesus' power. He is upholding all of existence by his might as he sits across from his friend. But note that Jesus doesn't shame Philip for his doubt and his fear. In spite of all that he's shown him, he patiently answers his questions, calms his heart, and addresses his doubts and fears. I don't know about you, but that's like really good news to me as I think about my own relationship with God. Because constantly when I'm asked to obey Jesus or hand over something or, or trust him in some way, I'm filled with doubt and fear and I start to forget who he is. And guys, some context here we have to remember. It is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. And how is he spending his time? He is reassuring his disciples over their fears and their anxieties. That's what he's up to. Who is like Jesus? Nobody. Nobody. See, when nothing seems certain, when our world is falling apart, we need to know what is true, not just facts, but ultimately we see that truth is a person, right? His name is Jesus, and he is absolutely trustworthy. And what's more, Jesus is absolutely true to his own. This is referred to as his faithfulness, right? Jesus' track record here, we see his utter perfection. Everything Jesus said about what Peter and Judas would do, everything he said about his own death and his own resurrection happened exactly as he said it would. In the same Jesus, what does he promise to do for us here? In verse 2, he promised to prepare a place for us. In verse 3, he has promised to come and bring us to be with him where he is. And we'll talk more on this later, but in verses 12 through 14, he promises to equip us and send us out. When we feel anxiety and uncertainty like the disciples did, we don't just need to know the things that are true. We need someone who is absolutely true to us. And Jesus is that person. Jesus finally states, I am the life. And this is maybe one of the, the harder-to-understand claims, I think, for me when I approach this passage. I, maybe I understand what he means by the way and the truth and how that relates to his disciples' questions. But you know, here his disciples are alive. They were alive for quite a while before they met Jesus. They're like, what is Jesus trying to say here? What is the claim he's actually making? Right? And it's important before we dive into this that Jesus absolutely has things to say about heaven and eternity in this passage, make no mistake. But Jesus' primary aim in verse 1 is to calm their anxious hearts in the here and now. And the good news is Jesus does not just offer us a good life. And he does not just offer the disciples here a good life. Or even a hard life with like the strength to get through it. What Jesus is offering is his life. His life for us. All right? Theologians often call this the great exchange, where Jesus on the cross takes on our sin and God's punishment for their sin. And in turn, we receive Jesus' perfect righteousness. That means God looks on us as though we have lived our life perfectly like he did. 
And the reason sinners like you and me get welcomed into the house of God is because Jesus was kicked out. Jesus was kicked out. Jesus left heaven to come here and live in a poor family where he worked hard. At age 30, he began a public ministry where he was rejected by his own people and religious leaders. And when he grew up and and became 33, he he was crucified outside the city, outside the city gates. And he was crushed, yes, by the religious leaders, but what's more is he was crushed by the wrath of God himself against sin. And Jesus did this for you and for me because he cares so desperately about us. He faced the worst our sin had to offer so we could have what is best in this life and the next, being close to God, being in his presence, fully known and fully loved. And as Jesus sits with his disciples, right, they are physically near to God, but one day for all who trust in Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life for them, they will spend forever with God in his presence. This is the gospel truth that gives us peace when we lose our job or face depression, or have a child reject the faith, or a loved one passes away. There's an old hymn that I feel like the the story behind it highlights this idea really well. It was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford. And uh, I just want to read a little bit about his life and the context of this poem that he wrote. So you're the author and his family were prosperous and revered members of Chicago society in the 1860s and were part of the Presbyterian subculture in that city. Various calamities then struck them, including the loss of a real estate fortune in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And side note, Wisconsin friends, we know the Peshtigo Fire was bigger. I feel like Wisconsin people love to point that out. Yes, true. This is Chicago. Gear shift here, all right. So in 1873, while Horatio remained behind to settle business matters, his wife and four daughters embarked on a ship for Europe. And the ship collided with another one, and the four daughters drowned as the ship sank in 12 minutes. And when Mrs. Spafford landed in England, she sent a heartrending telegram to her husband that began with the words, Saved alone, what shall I do? When Horatio sailed to meet her a few days later, he penned his famous poem on a piece of stationery from a Chicago hotel as he neared the site of the shipwreck. Horatio's on the boat. He's coming up to the grave of his four daughters. He's sailing to see his wife, who he has not seen since the accident. The name of the hymn is It Is Well. It starts out this way. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whether, whether life is easy or really hard, whether you are having an easy time, peace like a river, or whether you are on a ship sailing past the graves of your daughters, whatever my lot, God, you have taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. What's in the coming verses? What is he going to write that is going to make him say it is well, When facing this kind of calamity, I have three children. I can't imagine losing one of them. He's lost all four of his daughters. He writes this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I cannot imagine what the rest of his life looked like or his wife's. I cannot imagine that it was easy or fun. I have to imagine, although I did not do the deep dive, that Horatio and his wife struggled with grief the rest of their time here on earth. He is not saying things are easy or good, but notice what he does that gives him peace. It is not to dive back into his business and distract from his pain. It's not even to get all of his spiritual discipline together and like try to fight for joy. It is to look at the truth of the gospel, to know for certain that God loved him so much that he sent Jesus to die in his place and rise again. Here's the thing, though. For many of us here, when we hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we absolutely agree with that. We hear that and we say, yes, I'm on board, absolutely. But if you're like me, you often struggle to live like this is really true. right? Maybe you don't dress like Mr. Rogers, but when you face a really hard day at work... <laughs> or rejection from somebody, or, or have to go through something that's no fair, right? You look for a plan B. You start to forget that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for you, and you look for a plan B. Maybe like me, you, you double down in your planning to control your circumstances, or, or run to your phone because you want to be distracted from the thing that's hurting you. Maybe you get louder and angrier to try to force your influence and power into a situation, or, or think about what it would take to finally get the approval of others. But the good news is Jesus does not just want to be the way, the truth, and the life to you and I as like an idea. He wants us to actually believe it. And the only way we get that peace is by coming to him again and again. Right? I remember years ago when my family and I found out that the house we'd been renting with three small children was contaminated with lead. We had to leave now. And we spent the next seven weeks living with friends throughout the city, moving around a lot, and, and just living transiently. And I had a really hard time believing that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life for me in that season. It's not easy. But the, the ticket to, to understand and to get from a place where we're not believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to understanding that he is is called repentance. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. And what we need to start doing to having the peace and the calm that Jesus is promising is to start repenting of the other things we look to to be the way, the truth, and the life for us. And that means first we have to identify what some of those things are. You see, even this past week as I was finishing prepping for this sermon about a week ago, I remember sitting at the Starbucks High V Starbucks, high high bucks, the high bucks. <laughs> and I was sitting in the high bucks, and I was I was sitting there, and I just wasn't super happy with where this was at, and so I made a plan B. My plan was to like white knuckle it and muscle down and say, all the spare time I have this week, everything I can do, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to be a big ball of stress, and that's fine. Sunday afternoon, I'll collapse. That was my plan. And that God graciously reminded me of the very text that I'm preaching from. That he had brought me that far. 
that the reason I had a relationship with him or had done the prep I had done that far is because he had carried me that far, and he was going to bring it to completion, right? The question is, what other things are you looking to to be the way, the truth, and the life for you? See, when we're confronted by Jesus graciously and patiently like this, the question will inevitably come up, God, before I give up this other thing I'm trusting to be the way, the truth, and the life for me, how do I know for sure that you are where life is? And the answer to that is to look to the cross, to remember what he did for you, that he held nothing back, that he died for you, that he rose again, proving that he defeated Satan and sin and death. This is the good news we remember every week when we take communion. See, if you have trusted Jesus with your life, maybe even for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go to one of the two tables in the back, dip the bread in the juice, and take that as a reminder of what Jesus has accomplished for you. But if you have not trusted Jesus with your life yet, I just want you to know how absolutely glad we are to have you here. Your questions, your process, your doubts, you as a person are welcome here. Communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus absolutely is. If you've not trusted Jesus with your life yet, we just respectfully ask you, hold off on taking communion, because God is after you and not empty religious ritual. But wherever you are at this morning, I'd encourage you to talk to God honestly about it. You see, some of you are here this morning and you have trusted Jesus to lead you, to save you, and to be your great treasure in this life. And you are walking in turmoil, many of you, through things I cannot possibly understand. And this morning, Jesus wants you to be deeply comforted by the fact that he will not fail you. He knows what it's like to be a human. He is the way to get home. He has prepared a way for you to get there, and he has promised he will bring you to be with him where he is. He has not abandoned you. For others of you, you need to understand and wrestle with the exclusivity of Jesus' claim this morning. Because you see, the great comfort he is offering is only available to you once you have submitted to him. And this is not just at like a head level by understanding who he is cerebrally, but by submitting your life to him and asking him to change your heart, the deepest part of who you are. And if you're struggling with doubt and fear and with having the faith you need, the solution is to come to him. Here at the end of our passage, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And what glorifies the Father in the Son is seeing sinners come with their doubts and their fears and their anxieties and their uncertainties to Jesus and finding their everything in him. Not by them muscling through it on their own and figuring it out on their own. If you don't believe him yet or haven't trusted him yet, with your life this morning, I just want to ask you, like, who else is like Jesus? Who else is comforting their disciples the night before he's crucified for them? No one else will help you like he does. No one else cares about you as deeply as he does. Finally, for some of you, you are a follower of Jesus, and this season isn't especially crazy or chaotic right now. That's awesome. Like, thank God for his generosity. It is so good that for many of us, we don't spend our whole lives in a season of calamity or anxiety. 
But there's a couple things to keep in mind this morning as you think about his words. The truth is, sooner or later, we all face chaos of some kind. And we serve ourselves really well when things aren't chaotic to remind ourselves of the truth that Jesus does not abandon us when things are. But what's more? Jesus does not just want us to have this peace ourselves. He is sending us as agents of that peace out into the world. The truth is, you have neighbors and coworkers and friends that feel like life is meaningless or chaotic or a total mess right now. And their world is falling apart. And here at the end of the passage, Jesus is commissioning you and I and sending us out as agents of this peace. He says, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Just to unpack that briefly, Jesus is not saying you're going to do something like die for the sins of man and rise again. But during the life of Jesus, there were a handful of disciples made, a handful of people saved. And mere weeks after he was resurrected, we see Peter preach a sermon and thousands of people get saved. What he's talking about here is the scope of the works as the whole church works together to make disciples and to plant churches. You see, the reality is, if you're like me, you're too tempted often to try to calm the trouble in your own heart or others' hearts by offering something other than Jesus as a solution. You see, if people are struggling with finances, it's really tempting to just like give them a budgeting plan maybe, or if they're working through relational trouble, to talk to them about love languages, or maybe if they're struggling with doubt, you tell them it'll all work out in the end. But as Jeff Vanderstelt writes in his book, Gospel Fluency, I think this quote just kind of really nails this on the head. I just want to read this as we close here. He says, applying wisdom for financial planning, relationship building, and every other area of life is important and necessary. However, if we fail to give one another Jesus, we lead one another away from him. We could have our finances in order while our hearts are completely out of order because we're doing it for all the wrong reasons. We might be great at communication and conflict resolution, but if we are not reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, our relationships will be shallow and temporary in nature. You see, Jesus this morning is not just offering himself as a means to some other end. He is the prize and the way to get there. He is the antidote for the disciples' troubled hearts, and it is only through faith in him that our anxious hearts will find peace in the midst of calamity too. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your kindness, and your generosity, and your patience with us. God, we are in need of you to just be reminded that you are the way and the truth and the life. And we just repent of like the other things that we look to to be that for us, Jesus. And so I just ask for you to meet those this morning who know and love you, who are in the midst of calamity and strife, that you would comfort them and remind them you have not abandoned them. God, we pray for like our unbelieving friends here, that they would come to you with their doubts and their fears, and they would come to trust you, and that you are who you say you are. And finally, we just pray, you would send us out to be agents of this peace to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends who need to know about you and all that you've done for them. Amen.